Hi, my name is Jesse Cadden, and I've devoted my life to figuring out what goes into making great albums. I've produced over a thousand records, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present Inside the Album, where we get to go deeper on how your favorite artists have made the amazing albums in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the musicians and the team behind them that helped craft these records while getting to know the little secrets that go into making great music. On this episode, we're going to talk about Shooter Jennings' latest record, Shooter. Waylon Albright Shooter Jennings is a maverick songwriter who, while known for being a part of the outlaw country scene, is truly beyond categorization from his wide range of work. The son of country music legends Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter, he spent the first few years of his life in a crib in his parents' tour bus surrounded by the likes of Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, and Chris Christopherson. This prepared him to go on to be the creative force he has been for eight records and countless other projects, including producing Brandy Carlisle's insanely successful three-time Grammy-winning record, By The Way I Forgive You. In 2018, he released his latest LP, Shooter, to great acclaim and praise for the amazing songs on the record. Around the release of the record, we sat down at Atlantic's New York office, and he showed me his big personality that you instantly just want to be around. As you'll hear in this podcast, there's a ton of laughs. But since his origin story has been told so many times, I want to just hear about what has been happening since his last record. My last record was called Countach, and it was a tribute to Giorgio Moroder that I put out in 2016, technically. But, you know, I've been, I've had a label since 2013 called Black Country Rock, so we, we're putting out our 50th release this year, and we've kind of like, I've spent a lot of time working on other records by other people for our, our deal, we also producing records. I co-produced Brandy Carlisle's record, By the Way I Forgive You, with Dave Cobb, who did my record. And I've been working on a lot of random projects, but to me, like, producing records is, like, my favorite thing, like, making new records. So, like, pretty much since 2013, anytime I'm not touring for my own thing or doing my own records, I've been working on other people's records, which is ultimately my in-game goal, I think. Touring, having to tour, you know, that that's kind of a have-to-do thing at the moment. So it's <laughs> like, you know, that that's kind of kept me pretty busy. But, you know, besides living family stuff, just doing records, Been I make some games here and there, so I've been making some games for online use and stuff and just just having fun man just sticking my nose as many creative projects as possible shooter has long been known as this independent diy force in music so him signing to low country sound and electra is a big difference so i wanted to talk to him a bit about that first it was kind of part of the process of dave doing the record he felt like feel like dave kind of like really wanted he wanted to bring me into the label but at the same time like you know we've been family and friends for so long that i think that that he wanted to kind of bring his old friend in to what was going on to some degree and and i wanted it too because like you know i love having my own label but we have very limited resources and things and we do well enough to to stay alive and make money with my records but you know i'm young enough and there's a little not a lot going on in the in the scene that i i wanted to make sure that i had my music out there and, and on that same platform so i was very fortunate i feel very fortunate that greg was into the record and, and that, that dave and greg brought me into the fold and at the same time they were bringing brandy into the fold and brandy and i've been close friends for a really long time so like or we've been friends for a really long time we, we've been close really since about a year before the record since she did uh the neverending story on my Giorgio record but with her going there i really wanted to be label mates with her i loved that and i believe i believe in her and i feel a real close kinship with her and so uh, you know i really wanted to 
to, to go to label. And I was scared, man, because, you know, like we own everything. We do everything at BCR. So to like go into a situation where, you know, Atlantic is going to own the master and there's going to be all these like other factors that we had to negotiate a lot of things. Cause like, I mean, I've, I tour, I've toured without a label uh, very successfully for a long time. So it's like, you know, there's a lot of those elements that go to those deals because Greg is great. And because Greg and, and Dave believed in me and the album, we worked it all out. And I was just beyond excited to, to join the LCS family and be part of Electra and really get in the ring again, because it'd been a while since I'd been in that kind of mainstream ring. I feel like I'm more fit than ever to do it. So I was kind of ready to jump in the jump in and get the monkey, you know? As a record producer, I've experienced that when artists move to the other side of the glass and become one of us, that it often really affects the way they make their own music. So I asked Shooter if he experienced that. That's a good question. No one's actually ever asked me that, but it, I think it's a gradual like hive mind kind of situation when it comes to making records. Like the first record I produced on somebody else was in 2012. I did two records of my own, Family Man and The Other Life. And those were kind of the first records that I produced. And they were, you know, outside of Dave, because Dave and I had done my five records together. I've never worked with another producer besides Dave. And I kind of never really ever intend to work with another producer just because Dave and I kind of developed a style together that kind of formed my musical taste and I, to some degree I think his but I mean he had his own thing. I did this record on Fifth on the Floor, a great Lexington Kentucky band in 2012 and that was the first time I started venturing into doing other records and did a record on Jason Boland after that. But as I started like doing them, like I always love doing records. I love arrangement. I love experimentation and stuff like But like as time went on it becomes more and more like a second nature thing kind of, you know. At first it's kind of a challenge and then after you've done like so many records it becomes kind of like you rely on your instincts a lot more. But the thing about producing records, to me, I look at each song that you're kind of handed or that you choose or whatever as kind of like a Rubik's Cube and you're kind of, or like a puzzle. Moving song to song, you're kind of solving that puzzle in the, in the best, most efficient way, you know? And I think that that process over and over and over and over again, record after record after record, if anything, it doesn't necessarily like, it's not like you're borrowing or that I'm borrowing music from other projects or ideas from other projects, but I think, it, again, it becomes like this hive mind thing where like all of these resources that you've used multiple times with other people or like a good example is like how to get out of a section, you know, that might be a musical section and you want to there's so many cliches that bug me, like guitar solos these days are really, when I'm doing a record, if there's going to be a guitar solo, it's got to be really good. Because it's like these days, it used to be like a really easy fallback thing is to have just, oh, you got a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, guitar solo, chorus or something, you know. Over time, I, I don't like kind of cliche things like that. And so it's kind of like you learn new ways to kind of arrange songs. And, and over time, that becomes kind of your move or, they're, you know, like getting out of a section, like, what do we do here? And then, you know, there might be something that maybe was a project I worked on years ago that will just like an idea will pop in my head and it might have been, you know, might have because the fifth on the floor record, we were trying to get out of a solo on a song called Wine, like that might help on the Brandy record in a moment or something, you know, it just becomes kind of this Overall, it's kind of like painter, and I don't mean to get like where I'm taking myself too seriously because I know that like producing records isn't probably the most. I'm not repairing skyscrapers in New York <laughs> City walking on the plank line or anything like that, but it's one of those things like when you're painter and you start using like whatever colors, and then all of a sudden you 
you discover that you work, you love this certain kind of pastel color. So you kind of do those a lot and then you get sick of those and then you move on to like a different medium and all that. But then like later when you're working on something, you always have those things you've done before. You always have those wings of the house that you built for the psychedelic record that you can always run into that room and say, oh, I'm going to grab that psychedelic tool and use it over here. And just kind of you do all that subconsciously, I think. When you have a discography as big as Shooter's, each creation you're making obviously has a reflection of some past work, but Shooter didn't quite see it this way, and this is how he explained how he was feeling with this record. Man, oh, that's, see, that's, it's funny, because, like, with every record that I've ever done, especially in the last eight years or so, I feel like that there's kind of two factors that go into making the record. There's a spark, which is basically, I used to be at a place, like, when I was just starting with my old band, and we'd get, like, a bunch of songs done, and then I'd have, like, quote-unquote, like, writer's block. What do I do now? Like, what do I write now? And, like, what I learned about that, in retrospect, is a lot of times the concept of, like, a writer's block or some kind of situation where you feel like you don't know what to do next usually comes from being, like, having the wrong tools or being in the wrong surroundings. It's not really, like, I don't feel free enough to just have some wild idea and run with it. But then after, over the years, after you kind of learned yourself as a writer, I've learned myself as a writer, I've worked with a lot of different people, found band that really works with me really well or people that I had a lot of experience, then you kind of, I've worked my way out of a place where I ever would think that I would have a writer's block because, like, there may be a whole year that goes by after I do a record that I don't even write a song, but I'm not worried about it because I know that when the spark comes, the two things, there's a spark and then there's a secret kind of for me. So the spark is is the idea. And when that happens, it may take a while for it to happen. When it happens, then I get excited and I have like an overall vision for an album. And then the secret is something that like I usually never reveal, but it's usually an idea or like... It's kind of like when an actor has like they have a backstory that they made up for a character, you know, there's kind of a thing like that. Like, for instance, I can give you an example, one that I'm, I don't mind giving away is that there was a record I did called Black Ribbons. And the spark of that idea was this whole album about a fictional band and this, this radio DJ that was going to carry the record from song to song. But the secret was is that it's, it's all taking place on Christmas, which was never revealed in the record, really. There's one song that kind of reveals that, but it kind of painted this gloomy, cold backdrop when I was writing stuff but it wouldn't be something norm someone would normally state like oh it's chris like especially stephen king who's on that record who plays the dj he wouldn't state that oh it's christmas because everyone knows it's christmas if they're listening to it in this fictional timeline and things like that but that was the kind of secret box for that record was that it was going to be cold and it was going to be a time when things were happy and all things were going bad so while he's big on this spark idea, he did have a little bit of a hiccup going into this record where he reflected and then changed his mind about the tools he was using to perceive how he should make this record. With this new record, Dave and I had just finished the Brandy record. I was just in a place, I was finishing a record 
that I've already got done and, and maybe it'll come out next or something. I just was like nervous about it being the next record. And I had hung out with Andrew Brightman, who, who manages Dave, and, and I'd played him for some of it. And he, and he loved it and stuff. And what he said was kind of really smart about it, though. He's like, he's like I always feel like your records are kind of four or five years ahead of what, what other people are going to do. So he's like, why don't you talk to Dave about doing a record now? And then, you know, this thing, because he heard it and it's pretty out there and stuff. So he's like, he heard it and he was like, you know, you could put this out later or whatever. But he's like, why don't you and Dave talk and kind of rekindle? Because he knew that I was in a place where I really wanted to. I had a lot of mixed feelings going on about things. And so I went back and I sat home, sat at the piano for a minute. And I was thinking, I said, you know what, I'm going to call Dave. And I called Dave and we started talking. And we had already reconnected and spent all this time together with Brandy. And we just started talking about this idea of doing, I just really want to do what I said to him, which was kind of the spark to some degree, which is I was like, I just want to do a, a Bocephus record. I just want to do like a Hank Jr. record. Because I feel like right now in this time and place where... You know, a lot had changed. Like when I started this other record, it was like before the election and before like the world had had all these kind of changes and everyone, I don't know, you know, everyone just started like taking sides and all this shit. And so I just kind of felt like it was a serious experimental record and I wanted to do something that was a little less serious. And so I talked to Dave and I said, man... Would you, you know, you want to do a record together? And he was like, I would love to do a record. And I was like, well, I want to do a Bo Stevens record. I want to do my Hank Jr. record. I want to do something that makes people have a good time. They put on a barbecue. They put it on their house. It has, like, real shit, but isn't heavy and isn't preaching and isn't talking about, like, heavy topics. Like, the other record I had been working on had a lot to do with my old friend passing away and some other people that I knew and our art teacher that I love very much passed away. So there was a lot of death in it. And there was a lot of, like, serious emotions, you know. Not to say that that won't come out one day, but I just kind of felt like... I really wanted a record that was a pure country record. It also felt like all these new guys that were really blowing up that are in the kind of outsiders of the country mainstream. I, mean, I don't even pay attention to country mainstream, so that's kind of out of out of my realm of talking at this point. But uh, all these kind of new guys are coming out. They're all kind of doing these records that were kind of experimental and pushing the boundaries of country. And, and I felt like me and Dave had done that, and I had done that. We'd done that many times, and I, I felt like the most left-turn thing I could possibly do was to go and do a seriously honky-tonk mixed with like kind of like honky-tonk meets like bad company record or something and that was kind of the spark for that and then after we got off the phone i sat down and i wrote rhinestone eyes and shades and hues that night at the piano so that was kind of the spark for it and then i kind of found my secret with it and then when we went in with dave we just i sent him all this material like i had songs i'd written previously i had songs that i was writing as the days went by that i really liked and i sent it to him and he he kind of chose the ones that he liked and we went in and we started and one of the good things with dave one of the great things with me and Dave is that Dave can, we can kind of sit there like little kids and just kind of make shit up on the spot. And we always did that with all the records that we did. I mean, a lot of Black Ribbons was us making a lot of the music up on the spot. I had like lyrics or I'd have ideas, but some of the songs we just made shit up and then I would write lyrics to them. I wanted to quickly have him clarify if this was happening in pre-production or if this was live in the studio, since producer Dave Cobb is notorious for writing on the spot in the studio. So like with this record, we came in and I had uh, Living in a Minor Key, which I had previously released on a George Jones tribute record because I wrote that song for George Jones because I got an email from a guy that said that he was producing George's last record and he wanted to know if I had any songs I'd like to submit for it. So I wrote two songs, sent them to the dude. Guy wrote back and said, these are great. 
Let me just see what old possum says. Well, then he died. George died. And I found out later that guy was full of shit. So mm-hmm. that, but that dude made me, that Larry Ferguson fella, made me write two new songs. <laughs> so that kind of, I put together this tribute record for George afterwards. So I took what, but there was like an acoustic version of it. It didn't have a real full band arrangement. So he loved that song. So I came in with that, that song, Living in Minor Key, Rhinestone Eyes, Shades and Hues. I had written Bound to Get Down right before we got in the studio. One of the biggest misconceptions with music today is that with all the tools we have in the studio and undo buttons, is that all these options make for better music. But what you hear time and time again when you talk to great creators is that they limit themselves. Shooter's going to talk a little bit about how he limits himself here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm good improvising, especially musically. Like when we're, I mean, again, like when we're writing these sections for like Denim and Diamonds, it'll be literally like, well, here's these chords and like, oh, what if we go to this section? And then I'll be like, oh, how do we do this? And like, okay, commit, move on. And then we keep doing, I'm a pretty big believer in just trust sharpening your instinct and just going right after your instinct and not overthinking anything, you know, and Dave's also that way. I mean, there's a lot of people I work with that I'll produce that like a lot of the times on the records that I, I produce, I'll often send the artist home to do their vocals, the singer or whatever, and they'll spend all the time they want, you know, find a local studio. That happens a lot. Uh, which is cool because like I'd rather them do that than me sit in the room for a week while they keep singing over and over and over and rather them get it to a place where they really like it and then come in and then we'll do touch-ups and that's kind of what Dave did with my thing a little bit and I'm a big believer in kind of letting people have their own process but yet having my process and not letting my process get in the way of their process to some degree but my process is usually going to be quick commit just go off instincts and don't be afraid to like like one thing with mixing with me like I love is like there's like rules that somebody put in place about like guitar solos are supposed to be this volume. They're not supposed to get extra loud or things are not supposed to get crazy loud in these moments. And I'm like, well, why? Like you listen to some of those Fleetwood Mac records and shit, those, vo- those guitar solos will get so loud in moments and it's probably accidental or it's like they're listening to it loud, but it sounds it's awesome. The cocaine. Yeah. Or the <laughs> cocaine. Hey, fuck it. <laughs> hey, you know, all right. Got any? No, <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, it's like those kind of things. Like, it, you just kind of, like, it's in the moment, like, capturing it and, and, and being excited about something in the moment. And then, like, a lot of people like to go, oh, I've listened to it a hundred times. I want to change this and that. And there might be some things that are worth changing, but otherwise it's, like, usually like, oh, man, it's great. Stick with it. Believe in it. In the moment, you loved it, and that's what we're, that's what we're running on. The, we're, those people who are going to listen to it the first time are going to have that same reaction you, you had the first time. So anytime an artist names their record with their first name, there's going to be the obvious question of, is this your definitive record? Just the same as any band that employs a self-titled album name. So I asked the question that everybody wants to know. Well, I think when me and Dave were like into the record, because we're here we are doing this country record and everything, and there was just a lot of autobiographical stuff in it. And somewhere somewhere during the middle of the recording, Dave was like, why don't we, why can't we just call this album Shooter? And I was like, I'm in. I said, I love that idea, you know, because like there was an album, my dad had a record called Old Wayland that was one of my favorites. And I love it when an artist will do something bold like that, because like in this, in this sense, it was a simple record and it was a record that like was really easy, personal. And again, like the humor factor is really important. And Dave and I always are able to maintain that across all the records that we've done there's always been humor in there so i feel like you know i just felt like it was a it was a perfect record to name 
to call Shooter, you know? And who knows that maybe every record that me and Dave do on this label will be Shooter 1, 2, 3, and 4 or something like that, you know, over time. Or, and it, this is the first record where I didn't really bring in the rock shit, you know? Like, I, I, I always, from day one, I think I was, I didn't want to be held within any kind of restraints. And so, with, like, the first record, we had a lot of rock. We, we did the first record without uh, a label and then when I first met Dave. And then we took it. I sent the record to Universal South, and they signed it. And I... Dave and I, it was like our idea was like country can sound cool. Like at the moment, there was nothing cool in, about country. There was like, it was like um, Rascal Flats had just come out and there was like this, the whole pop country thing was just taking off. And it seemed like ridiculous that like indie rock and rap and all these guys could cut these fucking records that sounded awesome. They sounded cool and they were like edgy and like, you know, they just didn't have any boundaries and it seemed like country had this boundary thing going on. So we, so when we did that first record, we had nobody over, well, we never had anybody over our shoulder because we always record in LA and there was never anybody around, but like nobody was over our shoulder and we did this record that kind of combined like rock and psychedelic rock and hard rock and classic country and gospel and all this and, and we kind of took that another step further with Electric Rodeo, which was even more kind of like hard rock country psychedelic stuff and then like the wolf was kind of us dialing back into more of a country thing but there was still a lot of like crazy keyboards or whatever so it was all kind of always had this like big mishmash of stuff and i think i always felt like i had something some kind of rebellious side that was like no you're not i'm not doing just a country record like it's gonna be everything into one so when it got after after like doing the Giorgio record, which I really felt had pushed the country boundaries to a point, I was like, I want, I just want to do something that was straight country and straight old school country, like you know, again, again the Bocephus reference, but it's like kind of you know bringing a little of the boogie woogie in the rock because no one's doing that now. You know, there are some people out there. I don't want to say no one's doing it, but like there are people out there doing it, but like in in the what's what's really kicking around and people are hearing, there's not a lot of that. In, in country and so I just kind of set out to make that kind of a record and really didn't worry about having to like prove that I was also all these other things because I'd already done that so many times that it was like this time around it was like let's just do something straight country and real and 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 fun you know and and happy to some degree so it was kind of the overall it's a little heartache in it you know it's overall kind of positive like make you like want to hear it again or like spend it on a road trip or like play it with your friends it's you know that's kind of the idea it, it was just pretty even country and that, my brother said that like my brother buddy he was in the studio and he's like you know he talks funny but he's like because this is your first cry in my beer country record through and through and i was like thanks buddy i put you through enough here here you go <laughs> <laughs> Small town wild woman, where's your mama now? Working double shifts at the new bank in town. With a crack in her smile while you sleep on Next, I talked to Shooter a bit about the process of actually making this record. I learned a lot from Dave in that area all those years we worked and all the records that I produced. I, I work in a studio in L.A. that a guy named Mark Rains, who Dave brought with him to, to L.A. They, Mark engineered my first three. When Dave left, Mark bought a lot of his gear uh, and other gear. So his studio is very similar to some degree of what Dave's taste is and which has inherently become my taste over the years, you know. So so it's a lot like... 
RCA Studio A is Dave's Haven. So he's got like, you know, all the Abbey Road stuff. And he's got like, it's interesting because Dave does things differently than I do. Like a lot of times I record, when I produce records, I record them to tape and then I dump them to Pro Tools afterwards. And then we do a lot of overdubs. Dave likes to do them all in Pro Tools. And then he takes the tracks and he like mix the drum, mixes the drums down to two tracks. He'll mix the whole thing down to about eight tracks. And then he'll dump those through a quarter inch tape machine and then back like with this you know Beatles era thing so that that will give it this this kind of unique tape feel that's a little different so that's the kind of Dave's thing but I mean a, a lot of that like you know Dave's very adamant about it, his ideas in that area and a lot of times I'll default unless I'll just unless there'll be something that I'm, I'm specifically wanting to do but like going in going in the sound of the record will be defined by the song to some degree so I know that Dave's going to take that and put his magic on it and and again with this record like I was like I'm not even going to get behind the the other side of it like even though he would try to pull me into like production ideas a lot when we're writing and stuff that's one thing but like when we're actually mixing and all that I was like Dave I want you to do your thing on this you know what I mean because that's why you're producing it like with Brandy we might have had some different things that happened that were kind of ideas of mine push pull this way and all that but it but it all worked out good but with Dave for real like he's he's a master of the gear so it's always cool to, he'll often be like hey man check out this thing I just bought and he'll just like pull out some compressor or something and he'll like run shit through that and then he'll like run through another one and ABM and stuff and that you know so it's always fun being around Dave because he's always got some new gear he's got some old some new old gear that he's got you know or some new plug-in that he's like check out this thing like he, he turned me on a fab filter which i'd never fucked with really and i love that man you know i use it all the time now so it's like it's always just kind of a fun collaboration of learning and telling stories and and stuff you know like i'm it, it's just funny man he's i love dave he's a brother to me so it's kind of i i'm just proud to sing his praises a lot of the time you know as I had mentioned before, Shooter, along with Dave Cobb, produced Brandy Carlisle's amazingly successful record, By the Way I Forgive You. So since the recording of this record started up right after they finished Brandy's record, I talked to him a bit about how that affected the process. You get in there and you're working on arrangements and you're just kind of, at this point, you know, I'm way better musician than I was in 2005 when we first started doing the records and Dave's way more knowledgeable in all these different areas. So by the time that we got to my record, it was all really easy. Like I had played piano all over the Brandy record. So like I'd been playing his piano and doing all that. So when we, I wrote a lot of songs on the piano, even some of them that like Rhinestone Eyes, it doesn't sound like a piano song, but it was written on the piano. Like one thing that was, I guess, different about this record is that 99% of the songs were written on a piano. I think I'm starting to get get more comfortable with my own limitations. I mean, guitar, I love guitar and I, and I, and I would write songs on guitar when I was younger because, because I would hear songs on guitar and assume that that's how they're written. But then the older I've gotten, it's just, it's way easier for me to just sit down at the piano in my living room and write like rhinestone eyes and then and then we arrange it like a, a guitar song you know what I mean and I'm better with the stream of consciousness kind of writing because like with like that song like where do I go for a chorus I'm like writing these verses and I just go right to this minor note and I was like it just very easy for me to stream of consciousness write an arrangement while I'm writing a song on piano and on guitar I find myself more limited because I'm not as good of a guitar player I'm just not I'm like play it all the time on stage and I've, and I've got my way of playing it but I'm not, I didn't grow up playing guitar. I grew up playing piano and drums. So to me, it's just so much easier for me to just have ideas and flesh them out. Like even again with the Brandy record, that whole time, it was me at the piano and Dave at a guitar. So like when we'd be working on songs, I'd be like putting in my two cents or throwing down these things or coming up with ideas on the piano. And then he would like adapt them to the guitar and then they would learn, you know. So I'm just way more comfortable behind the keyboard of a computer or a piano. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm gonna do with my whole day. I'm 
getting D-R-U-N-K Gonna let that whiskey river Just to carry me away I won't think an ounce about you As I watch the sunshine fade on most of Shooter's records, he's the sole writer on the record, but I noticed in the credits of this one that he did have a few collaborators. Usually Dave Cobb is the only writing partner on the record, so I asked him to elaborate a little bit about how that happened. During the Brandy record, Dave, I don't usually co-write with anyone. I've, it's not that I don't want to, I just have never been good at it. It's like the, a weird thing for me, like I'm, I'm very self-conscious about my ideas a lot of the time, so I don't like to like show them to people until I feel like I've fleshed them out, you know? And so writing with someone on the spot, I usually defer to them because I'm kind of just self-conscious about like throwing out dumb ideas, unless I'm really comfortable with them. And most of the time, the only times it's ever worked has been people that have the same sense of humor as me, so that usually kind of ends up being funny. Kind of Aaron Ratty or in, in Nashville that Dave had worked with a lot and he had written some songs for the Star is Born thing and he'd written some songs for uh, just different people that Dave had worked with. Anderson East it was friends with him. They had an office above Studio A there. So during the Brandy record, we had the weekends off and he goes, why don't you write with Aaron? And so I went up there and I wrote uh, D-R-U and K with him. And we one day couple hours we knocked it out and I loved Aaron. Like Sense of Humor was just right there and we just, you know, smoked some pot and wrote, wrote that song. Now seemed like the perfect time to bring in Aaron, who Shooter was just talking about. Aaron's going to talk a little bit about how he sees his role as a songwriter. Lately, I've, just, I've kind of just been focusing on on the lyrical aspect of, of songwriting. I'm 35, so I, most of my songs kind of started sounding the same melodically once I hit about 25, I think. I'd already, most of the time, I don't even show up with a guitar. I, I'm more, people ask me what I do. I say, I play the ink pen. I, I used to have a business card that said, uh, Coaxer of Emotions. A ranger of ideas. And that was, I kind of just try to, when I'm co-writing at least, like when, when me and Shooter are writing, just kind of try to figure out what my co-writer's wanting to say and help be more of like a tool or vessel to help them say it and not get conquered by my own thoughts. Because for me, it's a lot harder to write a, write a tune by myself, I think. I then asked him what it was like working with Shooter. I have a, a publishing deal with Dave Cobb and uh, Warner Chapel. Shooter and Dave worked together a whole bunch, and I think Dave's made a bunch of most of his records. I'm not, I'm not sure. A lot of them. Yeah, I just kind of hang out and stuff's going on. Shooter was working on his record, and I've been blasting a bunch of Motorhead upstairs, and, and he could hear the Motorhead, too, I think, at one point. So we just hung out and we're like, well, hell, let's give it a shot. It's just kind of like a right place, right time kind of thing. For one of the songs, for that song, D-R-U-N-K, that was was the first song we wrote. there's another one on there too those were more just kind of hanging out in the studio and helping people help them figure out how to get out of the tunnel you know how to get to the light at the end of the tunnel lyrically our particular sessions weren't we just kind of hung out you know you just shoot the shit for a couple of hours or as long as it takes i want to say that none of our writing sessions took that long i'm more like a go with your gut writer i think with that song d-r-u-n-k we were we were wanting to yell something and then we thought it might be fun to spell something and yell something and so we started just going through words. Drunk and high wound up being two words that we stuck on. <laughs> and then we kind of just ran it down. You know, I think writing a song is about just figuring out what road you're going to go down and then going down it. The hard part for me is figuring out what that road is, where we're going to go. So I think Shooter knew where he wanted to go, and we just went there. What I love about Shooter is that he sticks to that old school sound. Shooter's country. It's hard to find country anymore. He comes from it and he is it. It's going to be country. So country rock and roll. I then had Shooter talk about some of the other songwriters he worked with. The only other people that were involved in the writing of the lyrics was a guy named Leroy Powell. And there was one song, I'm Wild My Woman's Crazy. And I just, I had come up with a chorus and I didn't really know what to do with the verse. So 
Aaron, the writer I was telling you about, Aaron submitted his version of it. Leroy submitted his version of the verses. Then I combined those with like my ideas and an idea Dave had, and it kind of became this like homogenized thing. But Leroy is one of the only people I've written with successfully. Like he he was in my band during my first three records, technically four, but my first three that put the Obatton Country Electric Rodeo and The Wolf. And he and I wrote many songs, several songs, but they were all funny. Like, so me and Leroy always had this really dark sense of humor and we would write these songs like that. So I, I feel comfortable with him. He's very easy to write with because it's like that sense of humor is there. That he was involved there. But otherwise, it was just me and Dave and doing everything. And, I, you know, I wrote all the lyrics and, and, and Dave and I constructed some of the music on the ones that, that wasn't there together. And, you know, it's kind of like that. Usually it's just me writing it. It's, but occasionally we'll have, you know, people come in and do stuff. But do you love Texas? Hell yeah. So do I. I then had Shooter talk a little bit more about the process and some memories of making the record. The rest of the songs, like Do You Love Texas, was written on the spot. Dave was like, hey man, Texas loves you. You should write a song about Texas. We're sitting in the parking lot. Uh, I go, do you love Texas? And he goes, hell yeah. And I go, so do I. And then we just like started laughing, you know, and then that, that like took off. So then we went right in the studio and wrote like all the music for it, with me kind of humming along with ideas. And then I would like go home and write that. And the same thing happened with Denim and Diamonds and I'm Wild and My Woman is Crazy. And uh, okay, Fast Horses and Good Hideouts I'd already written. I'd already, that was actually originally going to be on this other record that I was working on, but I didn't have the arrangement as well done as I wanted to. So I, I kind of rearranged it and redid it. That song in particular is funny because the title of it came from Randy Quaid the actor who he and I had been in contact over the last couple of years. He would do these things where he would like read the Bible on Twitter and stuff. And it was like around Christmas time, he's like reading something out of the Bible. So I was like, Hey man, do you mind if I take this audio clip and play it on my radio show? So I did it. And then he wrote me this letter and he was like, thank you. You fulfilled my lifelong dream of, of reading the gospel on the radio and all this. It was really sweet. It was like really funny. And he ended it with here's to fast horses and good hideouts. So I was like, dude, I'm writing that song. I'm writing that song right now. <laughs> you know? So I wrote that and he's got, it's me and Dave and him. I write, write a credit on that. Cause Dave came up with the middle sections musically. And so, you know, a lot of it, was done all within the week and a half that we recorded it. And then I went home and wrote lyrics to a lot of it or finished lyrics and then came back. Uh, I actually did some of the singing there, but I do way better when I sing alone. So I, I at home, I went, recorded all the vocals at home, except for on like w one or two that I had already done. And when I got there, Dave was like, dude, you got to recut all your vocals. You do it better. And so they just left and I was in the studio by myself. There were certain songs that I had already recorded vocals for before I left. So I just sang the ones that I had not recorded at home and he he liked my home vocals so much that he wanted me to replace the ones I'd done in the studio right there oh, without wow. anyone in the room. Like, use the mic I had and me run the session because he just knows that I work better. Again, it's like the songwriting thing. I work better without people watching me, but then I'll, I'll get a better thing, you know? So it was kind of like that. Very end, I, whatever vocals I had not re-sang, I re-sang, and then we, we kind of put it all together, added, brought the horns in, brought in the background singers, did all that, and and finished it, you know? And, and it was kind of all done within about 
a scattered two week period. And it was, you know, man, I mean, it was just kind of one of the, it was very easy. You know, we mm. didn't get stuck anywhere, which I feel lucky. I feel like I haven't gotten stuck in the studio in like at least nine years. You know what I mean? And that's good. Cause there have been times where years ago where I would get, you get somewhere and you're like, God, I don't know what to do. But again, not all the right surroundings. Maybe it wasn't the right band at the time. Maybe it wasn't the right situation, you know, but when you're in a situation where everyone can handle the workload, then it's like, you can just zoom through it. When you hear a lot of people talk about the outlaw country scene, one of the things about it is the disdain for the Nashville way. But it's funny because Shooter's hatred for that Nashville way actually brings out inspiration in him. Here he's going to talk about how that brought out the song Denim and Diamonds. I mean, they all kind of have stories. I mean, like, I, you know, uh, Rhinestone Eyes, I wrote about my wife and the years I knew her before we got married and stuff. But there's meaningful things. But there was a funny story about Denim and Diamonds. We had done the music for that song. And I needed to write lyrics to it. And we kind of had an idea of an old song that we kind of based the arrangement on. And, and I was, like, uh, trying to write songs. And I don't remember when the Denim and Diamonds line came, but... And during the Brandy record, like, I hate Nashville. So I, I hate being in Nashville. And, like, well, during the Brandy record, they, they offered to put me up in a hotel in Nashville. But I knew that if I did that, I'd end up at bars. I'd spend money, make an ass out of myself or something, you know, come in hungover. I was like, this is not... So I have I have this dear friend I've had since I was about 12 years old. Him and his wife live in, in Springfield, which is about 30 minutes outside of Nashville. So I would stay with them at their house during the Brandy record. I would come into town. I'd, you know, and I'd get down at the record. I'd drive out there, and then I'd drink with my old friend. It'd be like 10.30 at night, 11.30, and then he'd go to bed for work. And then, you know, it was just perfect, perfect time to be able to hang with my old friend. And then in the morning, I'd drive into town. And every morning, I started driving to Nashville and eating, and it was just like all college food, like barbecue and all this shit that would just make me sick. So I found this Waffle House halfway between Nashville and Springfield that I would stop at every morning. I'd get like eggs, scrambled eggs and, you know, bacon or whatever and go into town. And so there was these ladies and I'd already started writing the song. I had the idea for Denim and Diamonds and I kind of think I had the idea for the chorus because when I was in high school, there was this girl named Rain Beach that was a friend of mine that she would always go dancing at these clubs called Denim and Diamonds. There was another one called uh, Silverados and they were like line dancing clubs and they were like on fire during the 80s and 90s during the George Strait, like Garth Brooks era and all these cowboys would come and they're like freshly pressed western shirts and they'd be like line dancing the girls would go meet cowboys and they'd be drinking they'd sometimes have you know concerts and stuff so she'd always come into town and rainy and i were just friends she was kind of an outcast new kid and i was outcast we were just friends and she would come over you know after she'd been there out at one of those things all night and play like the dance by garth brooks and like half drunkenly sit cry and sing along with the dance so i like had this memory of her and so i was like thinking of her dancing at the denim and diamonds and, and thinking about like uh, a woman who's like her that this isn't her now i don't I haven't seen her talk to her in years, but like, you know, a girl who's like maybe a little older and maybe had a hard time in life, moved back home, but still goes dancing, still taking care of like kids, like still dealing with life, but she's got to go, she's going to have her fun time. She's going to go out there. Might, might be a little older, but she's still going to go have a good time at Denim and Diamonds. Well, we're driving, I stopped at this Waffle House and my wife came to visit me one of the, one of the weekends with Brandy and it was me and her were sitting there and there's all these, these ladies and like, there's, you know, one young, like Hispanic lady who's got tattoos all over and one old, like white lady and like, it's like five girls that are all 
I'll work in the grill and work in the whole Waffle House. And like Feels Like a Woman by Shania Twain comes on and they like literally like clockwork all start like swinging their, their spatulas and like singing along, singing in the spatula. It was like a cheesy scene in like a rom-com or something. And it was happening right there. And I was like, well, I went to the bathroom and like wrote the verses about a chick who worked at Waffle House who then goes to dance and it dinner. You know, it was like kind of the, it just kind of all came together in that one Waffle House bathroom. <laughs> I was like, I was like, well, there we go. Got that, you know, went in and I go, Dave, I got, I got this song. It's called Denim and Diamonds. And he looked at me like I was cross-eyed, like I was going to write some. I said, no, no, no. That was a club that these girls used to all go dancing at. You know, I'm not talking <laughs> about, you know, whatever. And, and I and I sang him the lyrics and stuff and he loved it, you know, and it, and it kind of worked. But it all kind of, it wouldn't have happened had that like the Brandy record, me having to be forced to find this Waffle House and then later my wife coming with me and I was sitting down and seeing that I was like that's that's these people are the people that I'm singing about in this song you know that that are just still full of life and having to work their asses off in a Waffle House you know what I mean so that was kind of a good story with that one but I mean they, I guess they all kind of have stories to some degree I mean you know like I don't think there's one that really doesn't have a story when I was a teen I would always dream of the Hollywood vampire club Racing a car off a mall hauling drive Living too fast for fear and too fast for love But now that my heart is out on the run And the stakes are way up high Lastly, earlier we heard Shooter talk about how the actor Randy Quaid brought on the inspiration for the song Fast Horses and Good Hideouts but that was only the beginning of the story because boy, does it get good. All right. Well, it's like, so Randy Quaid, that thing happens. I'm writing this song. I was writing it during the process of this previous record that we didn't release. So around, that record had a lot to do with my friend, the Colonel John Hensley, who was my manager who passed away. He came in in 2013 and started managing me. We became friends in 2012 and he changed my entire look of the world, like changed everything. Like uh, my life made a 180 after I met him and career career-wise, everything. So the second verse of that song, the first verse is kind of about me being a kid and just moving to LA on a whim and being like into it and then, you know, growing up and, and it being kind of a reality and which I love LA. I'm not in any way saying I don't like it because it, it is my home, uh, but just kind of growing up and, and kind of realizing you're always going to be chasing something. So when it came to the second verse, I wrote this verse about John and it says, if John wasn't gone, he'd put a coin in the jukebox. Someday never comes. I pray that my son has a friend like him, and the, but the dance doesn't end before the song is done. And I carry a piece of him and my dog and my daddy with me today. I've got John's ring and my dad's belt buckle and my dog ashes around my neck. And, you know, and I give a little piece of myself each time someone else just rides away. Well, the story, besides, you know, me kind of commenting on what a great person and friend John was and what a horrific thing it was to lose him, there's... There was a story, I go visit his grave. I take my kids to go visit his grave on his birthday every year. And his grave's like off of his parents' property. And so we went down there for the unveiling of his, his tombstone, which is this big jukebox. It's got a picture on it and stuff. John had a jukebox in his house. He, he would love this thing. It was a CD and a 45 jukebox, so it had both parts. So when he died, his parents got the jukebox, and it's in their garage. And so we were down there, and his dad was telling me, his dad, Tony, this jukebox would just it just would go ever since he died it'll just start playing songs and it would play Wanda Jackson which John managed uh, Wanda when he died and it would play all these things and it, one day it played Someday Never Comes which is the Creedence Clearwater Revival song about basically a son saying like basically like I didn't I, I was too hard on you guys like to his parents to some degree it was just like you know I didn't really I didn't express myself right there was like a missing connection there and it, it was I think a song about 
Fogarty's dad or mom or something. So he told me about how this jukebox went off. And I was like, man, that's that's crazy. And he was just in tears telling me about it. And um, so I wrote that line in the song. I did that vocal on Thursday. And on Friday, I went in and we finished the record. Again, this is the part of the story where Dave wanted me to sing the vocal there in the studio and left the room. So I sang this vocal on Thursday. And on Friday, we finished the record, and I had a show that evening in Madisonville, Kentucky. So I went from the studio to my friend's house in Springfield that I stay with when I'm doing the records, and then we drove out to Madisonville, and I saw John's dad. And he said, he said, you're never going to believe what happened. And I, he, I said, what? And he said, the other day I went in there and the jukebox was playing two things. And see, the way the jukebox works is it had four sets of speakers. It had two sets of speakers for the CD part and two sets of speakers for the 45 part. And he said, I went in there and it was playing two things at the same time. And I said, top was playing Someday Never Comes and the bottom was playing Waylon at the same time. And he said, I was, I was sitting there listening. I said, what is that down there? And he goes, it was Waylon. I said, wait a minute. I said, when did that happen? And he said, yesterday. And I said, what time? And he said, about five o'clock. And I go, that is when I sang that vocal. That is when I sang that John Hensley vocal at that exact fucking time. I was like, holy shit. You know, so that was like, I'm getting chills right now saying it. But it was one of those like, holy shit moments, you know, with that song. So, so like every night when I sing that song on stage, like I feel that moment every time, you know, and I think about John, his dad and all that, but. I see you in the starry night I see you in the ballroom on the floor Come to me, my rhinestone hearts Come to me just like you do Thank you for listening. You can find all the episodes of Inside the Album on your favorite podcast app. Shooter Jennings Shooter is out now.